you. Well, hey, again, it's good to have you here. Um, we uh, have a uh, opportunity as well to capture some of you who may be visiting. If you just want to fill out a, a little card that's in the seat and just drop that in a box, that way we can put you on our email list and tell you when things are happening. So we don't pass an offering plate around here. We have a box. So anyway, if you get a chance, that's the only thing we want from you. Is we'll just send you out an email to tell you what we're doing during the week. But we're glad you're here. So if you're visiting, thank you. We have a, a lot of our folks still up north at a wedding. I was at this wedding yesterday, and um, and it was it's the earliest wedding I've ever done, nine a.m. wedding, right? You know, like uh, so Shale was mentioning, and and um, it was it was remarkable to think like how far Caleb had come in his life to go from. You know, this is a guy that Cameron, his brother, who you all know, some of you guys know Cameron. Cameron is always saying, pray for Caleb, pray for, we just want to get, you know, want to see Caleb just come to Christ. And, and sure enough, he comes to Christ. And in my life, I never thought I would be at a mission center surrounded by all these missionaries because he's probably going to be going to like, you know, one, some undisclosed, incredibly hard to pronounce country somewhere as a missionary. And I'm still sitting there thinking about this kid that when we first met, Stephen, you met him. It was like when we first came around, he wouldn't even talk. And I remember saying, yeah, you know, after about three hours of like just pouring it out, hey, do you think you might want to, think you might want to go to church? He goes, no. And and to sit there and think, it went from no to he's up there telling me, just make sure you get the gospel out when you preach. I'm like, okay, thanks a lot. Any other advice you want to, you know, now that you know everything. But uh, anyway, it was uh, it was really refreshing. So we're glad you're here. And um, uh, just a couple of housekeeping things. You know, may have noticed in your bulletin, the What We Believe series, that ends today. So if you come next week wanting to go to that, um, what we're going to do is take a couple of weeks off. And then run another three or four weeks. So right now it's eternal security. The one before that was how the Bible came to be. So who knows what the next topic will be. So what they'll do is they'll look at the next topic and then they'll determine what it's going to be and how long it'll take and then we'll let you know. So we figure it's good, especially in the summer. Everybody's gone. You know, it's just good to kind of take the little turns doing that. Um, and uh, also this Tuesday, if you're free around lunch and want to come over by the church, bring your lunch, uh, bring a brown bag. We're going to sit in a conference room and talk about some ideas for future events and things when it starts getting a little cooler, some day trips and outings that we can take as a church to kind of hang out. So if you have any ideas or just want to critique ideas that people throw out, we'd love to have you. So do that, okay? Let me go ahead and pray for me real quick that I get this right, okay? Lord Jesus, please speak through me. Lord, let us really receive what you'd have us receive. Let us walk out of here with your truth in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you're brand new here, uh, you wonder what we do. We preach through uh, books of the Bible. So we've been in a book of 1 Samuel for a while, uh, months now. And we're, we've been in a particular season of this book where David is being pursued by King Saul. And, and what we also do is we go verse by verse by verse. And so we'll stop. We'll hunker down a little bit. We'll talk about what it means. Our biggest goal is for you to walk out of here with a grasp of that's what was in there. The greatest compliment you could ever pay anybody who really gets up and preaches is this. You made that crystal clear. You really, you know, I never knew that was in there. And that that's an indicator that... This is working because it's not just the study of like, okay, what does this word mean? You can only go so far with the Greek meaning of this or that. You, you really have to dwell on the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to give you the right words to say. So, cast of characters we're dealing with today, David, 
So David is on the run. He is being pursued by King Saul. King Saul has a son named Jonathan. Jonathan and David are excellent friends. They're amazing friends. They've been brought together. And you're going to see that unfold in a little bit. So as we left it last week, all David did... And by the way, this has been going on now 10 years. This is a decade of a man on the run. Last week we saw where the where David went to a monastery. All he did was ask for bread. And do you have any kind of a sword? And what did they do? They killed all 85 priests. When the king found out David had stopped there, killed all 85 priests, and then went to the town where the monastery was, killed every man, woman, and child. So you remember that in the back of your mind, that now you have David, who is, as we heard last week, he has 400 men. It's going to be continually chronicled in Scripture that there are a certain amount of men that are attaching themselves to him. Why is this important? Because for anybody to go serve under David... They're not getting paid. They're not in the army. They're not going to achieve rank. These are men who are not only serving a, a, a king who's not a king yet. Not only that, but he is also, they are also serving someone who is being pursued and want to be killed by the very king of Israel. It makes no sense to follow David at this moment. But yet there are 400 brave, courageous men who have embedded themselves into the army of David. A decade. This is not, oh, I think I'm going to try it out and see what it looks like. No. Most wars that you read about, you'll read after two or three years, the commanders will say something. The commanders will say, the army that I have now, even though it's half of what I had before, is much better than what I had before. Why? Because they're veteran hardened fighters. The, the shirkers, the deserters, the, the ones who are scared, they've all gone. They've run home. So these 400 men have entrenched themselves with David. And let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 23. Now they told David, <clears throat> Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. Now, you look at these two verses, and the first thing you think, if you go back to verse 1, who's they? Proverbial they, don't we love that? They who do every study that ends up being debunked six months later. They would have been citizens of Israel. Citizens of Israel run up to David. They said, David, um, the Philistines are attacking this particular place. And they're attacking them and robbing the threshing floors. Why is this important? First of all, a little background, Calah is a fortified city only 12 miles off the Philistine border. Not only is it a close target, but they're operating on the threshing floors. What does that mean? That means you have not, you're no longer in planting season. You're no longer in harvest season. You brought all your crops into these big covered areas and you are separating the grain from the shaft and you are actually threshing out the grain and you are milling everything. Everything at this point is ready for food production. The threshing floor is when the city was the fattest. This is when everything was going great. This is when everything was, was perfect. And now the Philistines have pounced on them. They've waited for this moment. They've, they've sat back. Why attack them when they're planning? 
Why attack them when they're harvesting? Let's go ahead and let everything get into storehouses and let's hit them. And so the Philistines have gone in. Now when you read, by, read the Bible and you read any scripture, always ask these questions. Here's what, now what, so what? Always ask those questions as to why you would want to look into this. And for me, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, why is David going to fight for a village when he's not even a king? Isn't that interesting? Shouldn't this be whose who's duty? Whose duty do you think it should be? The King Saul. This is the, he's the natural king of Israel, is he not? Is he not one that he should go in and do something? But no. So what does David do? David is knowing. David knows he's the anointed next king of Israel. But he's not somebody who's just waiting on a title. He's somebody who's waiting to serve his people. And so he jumps in and he goes. In verse 2, he goes to God. This is, getting, this is pretty much Sunday school level, right? Oh, I'm going to go to God. I'm going to inquire to God. He says, what should I do? God says, do something. By the way, it's interesting. The Philistines um, had noticed at this point that David is now in leadership. They recognize David's in leadership. So David is definitely assuming his place. Verse 3, But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? This is a very valid question, very valid point. These men are not at home. They're not at home in this particular place at all. Uh, they are looking at a, at a place where they're like, this is, Kayla is not our neck of the woods. Um, it's not where we fight well. We're continually overrun by different armies. Um, you know, I was reading a story about a soldier who was in a Confederate army. They were in Gettysburg. And the Confederates had a, suffered a severe loss in Gettysburg. And they crossed it over the Potomac to go back to Virginia. The soldier didn't write one thing in the diary about the loss at Gettysburg. What he wrote about was, he told his wife, actually it's a letter he wrote, he said to his wife, he says, we're so much glad, so much happier that we're over back into Virginia where our guns always seem to shoot straighter. And there's a, there's a common denominator there. Anytime you read about soldiers and you read about warfare, there's certain areas that they fought well in. There's certain areas that, you know, that they did well in because that was their particular area. This was not home. This was not their home. They didn't like fighting in this area. They look at David and they said, you want us to go now. We're in a, we're in a region that we're not happy with. We've been tr- constantly pursued in. And now you want us to go to this particular other place and die. And no. So what does David do? Does something remarkable. Verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So, when you look at this verse 4, it says, David inquired of the Lord again. Don't be one of those Monday morning quarterbacking Bible readers. Well, here's David's weak faith, and he prays again to the God. No, this is a pretty good guy. This is a guy going to God and saying, God, um, my men are scared, and is this the right thing to do? This is the quality of a true leader. This is total opposite. On June 6th and D-Day, our soldiers land on, on the beaches of Normandy. And so for some of those soldiers, they're equipped with 100 rounds, 100 bullets, right? So they're, they're charging these shores. You've had a defensive mechanism by the Germans that have been, has been in place for four years. And just 10 miles offshore are brigades and battalions of German tanks. And all night long, all the next, the whole morning, the German tanks sat idle. No one started the engines. No one did anything. Had those Germans pounced on our guys on the beach. You cannot imagine how bad it would have been. Why weren't they sent in? Because the generals were too scared to awake Hitler. They didn't want to wake him up. Because he would wake up in an absolute fitting rage. 
And you see how many times history has altered courses because of pride and selfishness and arrogance and leadership. This is a case study in how it is not. Um, I was interesting. I, I've watched enough <clears throat> videos and 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 topics on how people lead. And some of the greatest leaders were not the leaders who led from um, the front or even the rear. It was people who went side by side with people experiencing what they do. And that's a remarkable aspect to David. David's sitting there saying, okay, I know God, I know you gave me the green light, but my men are frightened to death. Are you sure this is right? And God says, yeah, I'm going to give you the Philistines. And so David has a piece. You think it in there, we walk out, everything's fine. This thing's about to take a lot of different turns. Verse 5. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. Now he could really stop right here, right? David not only went in, saved the city, but he comes back with a bunch of Philistine animals. He brings back cattle, he brings back donkeys, he brings back everything. He's, so he's, now he's, he has the plunder of an enemy. Everything's fine. But verse 6 you start to see some side stories coming here. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he'd come down with an ephod in his hand. And I was told to Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Go back one more verse. Go back to verse 6, if you could. Who is this guy? This guy is a very loyal man. He's, he's coming in as a priest. He's coming into David, and he comes in to Calah, and he has an ephod in his hand. So he has this ephod. He brings it in. And what is an ephod? It's an apron that a priest would wear. It was functional and ceremonial, too. It was functional that you would wear an apron, had a front and a back, and that would be when you would clean an animal, sacrificing animal, you wouldn't get blood all over your clothes. But as time went on, the ephod became really, um, it had a lot of substance, well, it had not only had substance in its functionality, but it began to be formal, like they dressed it up, and it, had, it was kind of heavy, and there were stones and kind of jewels on there, and there were these t- two particular stones called a thurum and an urum, I think, those are the names of them, and it's only mentioned in Numbers 24, and these stones, sounds weird, This is what they did. When a priest would talk to God and determine the will of God, they would use these stones. No one knows what they did with these stones. Don't know if you just kind of like heads or coins. You don't know if you did what. You don't know what they did, but God used these, these particular stones. They were in an ephod, and that's all we know about it. And the reason we don't know anything more about it is probably for our own protection, lest we have some freak televangelist trying to sell us two stones on TV that'll detect the will of God. But we don't know what they are. Um, but anyway, at the moment, he, he brings this ephod in. Go to verse um, verse. 7, back to verse 7, and you see, now is told to Saul that David had come to Keilah. So Saul is saying, you have put David in a cage. Keilah is an old city. Like I said, it's 10 or 12 miles off the Philistine border, but it's close and it's closed in. That means you've got him trapped. He has no way out, verse 8. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war. Don't miss that. He did sit and, oh, call the Republican Guard, he summons all the people to go to war down to, down to Calah to besiege David and his men. What does that mean? When you're fighting a, a, a walled city, you just don't attack a walled city. You camp out, and you wait it out several months, and you starve the people to death. And so he's just going to go there, besiege them, and hit them. David knew, verse 9, that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, 
The God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that the Lord seeks to come, that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Now, do you remember Nob, the city that held up the priest, was all annihilated? This is David, again, praying a faithful prayer. But what is he saying? He said that he's going to destroy the entire city just because of me. And then he says this in verse 11. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. Then the Lord said, he's coming. And so he goes to God and he says, God, you know, what, what am, is it true? I mean, first of all, is he coming to destroy and sack this city because of me? And then he says something that was like really estranged to me. Verse 11. Those of you who've ever been in warfare and you liberated a family, a town, a neighborhood, or whatever, to have that town or that family turn you in. Think about that. He's saying, will the men do this? And God says, yeah, and he's coming. He's coming for you. But again, you have to look at the people and they've heard everything that happened in a neighboring village of Nob that there's not a man, a woman, or a child, or a donkey, or a chicken alive because they were killed. Why? Because they gave David bread. Can you imagine what would happen to this place? It's a, it's, it's a victory for David. They're going to do everything to kill him. So verse 12, then David said, and watch this, are you catching this prayer? He goes to God again. But watch what he's doing. Thinking of his men, he says, Will the men of Kalos surrender me? Oh, I'm sorry. Will the men of Kalos surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They're going to surrender you. So David goes back and he prays, All right, God, I know you said they're going to surrender me, but what about my men? Are they going to take my men? This is a heart of a leader. This is what a leader looks like. This is the difference in someone who's just not looking out for themselves. How many times have we looked at from Muammar Gaddafi to Saddam Hussein? Look what happened. All the pomp and circumstance. You saw them standing under balconies with all the military parades and all the, you know, the jet flyovers. The most powerful men. These guys died. What Saddam Hussein, they threw him off a stairwell to hang him, right? Muammar Gaddafi, the ones who ruled over the Pearl of, of Africa and Libya, was um, being chased in, in leftover women's clothing and gunned down by, by his own men um, in, in, a, in a 20-year-old vehicle. They had no love and respect for these guys. David was a man who was unlike them. He loved his men. He looked over his men. There was loyalty there. Because I think so many of us are drawn to him for that. Verse 13. Then David... And his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went to wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. So, stop right here. He's grown by how many men? He's grown 200. He's now at 600 men. The rating, this is an army that is pretty solid. You're going to see in, uh, next week, it's going to unfold, that David is going to be hiding out in a cave. And we know from the number that's coming up next week, we are looking at Saul is sending out raiding parties and killing parties of several thousand men trying to get to him. 
And so in this particular case, uh, Saul was told that David got away, and so Saul just gave up, and he gave up the expedition. By the way, just the, the term expedition, written historically, speaks to thousands of men that are out there. Verse um, 14. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him out every day, but God did not give them into his hand. So, verse 14, some of you have been to Israel, you've been there. I don't know if you've ever gone to Ziph or not, but I've read up on it. What does Ziph look like? I never look over here, I should look over here more often. What what does Ziph look like? Apparently it looks pretty barren. From what I gather, everybody that looks at it says this, how did he live here? How did he make it? You're talking, there are no trees. It's arid, very sandy, huge lake that rises and dries up. It's a miserable condition. But there's a few nomadic people called what? Ziphites, I would imagine, right? They live in Ziph. They're Ziphites. So there's a few people out there. But David has embedded himself in this area. Why? Why hasn't he gone to a city? Why hasn't he gone to a fortress? Why hasn't he gone? Because he knows wherever he goes, all the inhabitants who give him aid and give him comfort will be killed. And so here he is in this God-forsaken, barren land when what appears to be. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And in now, I want to stop right here before we get to this next part because it totally turns. It takes another turn in a chapter. But this is huge to recognize something. All of us know the sovereignty of God. We all rest in the sovereignty of God. All of us do. But just because God is sovereign does not mean you cannot be sensible. There is a difference. When you look at the sovereignty of God, if you're one who just says, oh, you know, God's in control and you don't have to worry about it. And God's, you know, you're not, a, you're not a sovereignist. You're a fatalist is what you are. There's a big difference. There is a sensibility that God gives us to do things. As a matter of fact, I didn't have, I didn't, I was hoping to do it on a plane, but I started watching a movie in the back of my thing, sorry. But I was going to study in the, in the Gospels. There's a really, there's some interesting stories about Jesus interacting with shrewd businessmen who were not believers. He recognized, he's like, you know, you got a pretty good mind. You know what? You're doing pretty good with that money. This is a good example to follow. Jesus is given it, it's a clear indication in, in the New Testament. Use your mind. Use your brain. The reality is responsibility and duty are paramount to us as Christians. We just don't walk into the sovereignty of God and say, well, he's got all in control. You and I have a responsibility. And so, you're about to see in verse 16, David's going to get a visitor. Out of the blue, verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose, went to David at Horesh, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall sit next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Do not lose sight of who Jonathan is. Jonathan is the prince of Israel. His dad is the king of Israel. And what does he do? He goes to David and he says, Even my dad knows you're going to be king. Everybody does. You need to stay strong. And what's kind of pitiful is this. If you know the rest of the story, Jonathan dies in battle. But when he says, David, I'm going to be with you. 
I'm going to serve unto you in every way. What a remarkable thing. None of you ever been to a commissioning ceremony for an officer, military officer? Pretty impressive. What's, what's crazy is I, I go to these things and I watch, you know, as a college minister, I would always get these guys that would go in the military. You know, some would go enlisted. And some would go, they go to college and they would go in as, as an officer. And what always blew me away, and some of you in the military, you, you may appreciate this, you kind of got used to it. I would watch a 22-year-old that still has a struggle to shave walk up and there is, this, there is this sergeant who's been in the army for 15, 20 years, loaded with decorations, Stripes all down a sleeve, indicating the length of his service and the rank. And at that moment, the young man stands there. And as soon as he puts this little gold bar on his shoulder, as soon as he does that, this sergeant who's been in for 15 or 20 years stands at attention and snaps a salute and is immediately under the authority of this young man. Who, by the way... He trained. You know, so you go to these ROTC programs and these sergeants are, are training and are training these guys. And so all of a sudden here he's looking at him and, and you just watch in a second. North becomes south and south become north. And I'm always elbowing people like, is this amazing? Can you believe this? Look at the irony of this. This is incredible. This is, this is the prince of Israel looking at a guy in hiding the son of the king of Israel and says, I'm going to serve under you. You're going to make the best king. I'm going to be right there with you. But he goes to him because he's discouraged. I don't care how godly you are in this room. You're human. I don't care how long you've been walking with God. All of us need encouragement. You will never know the encouragement until you're at a place where you've lost someone and you remember who comes along. I'm telling you, you will remember who comes in the hospital and you will remember who visits you when someone dies. And oftentimes, what's the best thing to do? Do what he did. Jonathan, all he did was bring David's thoughts back to God. That's all he did. I remember when my mom went home to heaven and I had a lot of people coming around. I remember one person just sitting and just talking away. And it was so nice of them. I didn't hear one word they said. They're telling me about their grief process and what they went through. And I just remember looking right through them and thinking, I'm thinking about everything to do with my world right now. But I appreciate them being there. But I'll tell you, the best company I had was people that came in and just sat right next to me and didn't say a thing. And just sat there and just listened. Jonathan is coming alongside saying, look, it's going to be okay. I know you're living out here in the middle of nowhere it's going to be okay. You're going to be the king, and I'm going to serve unto you. Verse 19. Remember the Ziph, right? The people who lived in Ziph? Well, they showed up. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of somewhere, which is south of Jeshimon? You know, so. They go up and they, and they tell the king, these are nobads. These guys are like, I mean, they're like, look, get this guy out of here. We don't want to pay the price. They're telling the king where he is, verse 20. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. 
and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you've had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure... Again, here it sounds like Yoda speaking. Go make yet more sure, know the place you see where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. So he's basically saying, in layman's terms, tell me exactly where he is. And when I get there, we're going to be there, but you have to let me know everywhere he goes, because this guy's sharp. He's sly as a fox. Verse 23. See therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. And come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I'll search him out among the, all the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon. And let's get, bear with me in a couple of verses. It gets a little... Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and Arabah south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. And so what did David do? So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And so David hears this. He goes to this rock. And I imagine, I, I can't imagine the size of this rock. I mean, obviously it must be huge. It must be big. I don't know where the other 600 men have entrenched. But I do know this. In this area are massive caves. Caves so big that they hide um, entire air wings of the Israeli Air Force in them today, still. They're huge. So that is why Saul is saying, I appreciate you telling me where he is, but unless I know exactly where he is, I'll never find him. There's all kind of places to hide. They're still discovering caves in, the, in these particular areas. And so he goes and he hides by this rock. Verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying up to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture him, a messenger arrives to Saul saying, hurry and come for this Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. And David went up there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. And the chapter ends. But what's amazing is this, is the rock in which he went to hide is now a monument. That place is where people behold and say, this is the rock of escape. This is where, just when Saul was coming up on David, and David was hiding in this, he gets an order, and, a, and, and the message says, come immediately, we've been attacked, we've got to go. And it tells me something. It tells me that in the midst of everything that's going on in our world, and we look and think that there's no way out, God is doing things we cannot see. You know, I was talking to somebody, and you know, we're talking about life and how quick it is, and you know, when you get a doctor's report, and someone said something, I'll never forget, I said, you know, we never know what's ticking inside of us. We don't know what's, something's going on. But you know, we also never know what God is doing around us. We don't. So I was at this wedding yesterday, and Caleb had married into, um, <clears throat> I didn't mention this about the Brethren Church, did I? That was a nine o'clock service, okay. I can never remember what I cross over. The reason why I never tell jokes, because I'm afraid I'm going to tell the same one over and over again. So, he married a girl who was in the Brethren Church. I never, I never know much about the Brethren Church. It, it, the, the women wear, they wear laces, lace head covering. 
very conservative. And I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what, can I be me? I'm about to do a wedding. I do really personal weddings. Like, yeah, this is how they met. I mean, I, I'm afraid. And people are telling me, Jake, they're relaxed. They're normal. They're nice people. They're great people. And sure enough, they have humor like we do. They laugh like we do. They're amazing people. They just have 10 more kids than the average family. But they, they're just amazing people. And, and I just, as I'm around them, I'm watching this faith. And I mean, these people seem more connected to heaven than they did here in every way. Well, they also grew up in New Guinea. Papua, they call it. There's Papua New Guinea and there's Papua next door. And they grew up there and it's their first language. I'm talking white bread looking Pennsylvania people, right? Who speak perfect Indonesian. And that's their first native tongue. Blonde hair, blue eyed, speaking this language, and it blows you away. They all grew up together. Well, I was talking to this one young man and we were talking and, uh, and we're all breakfast and he mentioned something he just he brushed by something real quick in conversation and what he said was really it hit me he said yeah you know i um uh my is my my family so tell me about your family and he says well my sister she's not alive anymore and he caught himself because it's really strange to say it that she's not alive anymore and he kept moving he said, but she's doing she's obviously great and he kept talking and i it just hit me. I mean, it's just like, it was just in my mind. And the next day, the wedding, after the wedding, I pull he and his wife aside. Real young couple. I mean, they look like they're 15 or something. You know, but they weren't. They were 20s. I pull him aside. And I'm like, man, you said something that broke my heart about your sister. He said, yeah. Um, she died in uh, she was a car, car accident. He said, I had, my wife and I had gone over back overseas. My dad had gone overseas, and so we were different places, and um, he said it was really hard. I just got a phone call. You know, quick, you got to get on a moped and get back, and you got to make a phone call, and I got to make the phone call, and my mom told me that my sister just suddenly died in Arkansas in a random car crash. And everybody has said this girl was just amazing. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, in my mind, I'm like, this is just not... Um, no wonder it's hard to say oh yeah my sister's not here anymore especially if you you're not just a cultural Christian you're not just a Sunday morning Christian you've given up everything in society you could probably want to live in the humblest of means and you grew up in a village for all of your formative years Watched your family grow up. Oh, by the way, the girl who I, mar- I married off into the wedding, her dad had died in a plane crash as a missionary delivering things to people who were hungry and couldn't. I mean, you sit there and you go through all that, and your, your sister who comes over to go to missionary school to go back dies in a car accident on a country road in the middle of Arkansas. That is not fair. And I remember talking to him and I said, man, I'm just sorry. Because I'm telling you, anybody that I know in my family that is in heaven, that is just, we don't mourn for them. We as believers, we mourn differently than the world. But I said, what kills me is this. We're human. And it's okay to say, well, it stinks. And I am so sorry for your hurt and what you're going through. And he started choking up, started retelling a story. And I just remember thinking... We're all like this. We're all human. 
all of us that are a place where we could look at and we could think of and places in our mind that God's going to have to make sense of something. That when things like this, you have to go back to making sense of something. There's two words I want you to leave with today. Two words. Two words I skipped right over. And two words that jump out and make sense of everything. Verse 14. But God. In everything we do, in everything we worry about, but God has an answer. So, some people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does that happen? Why does, I mean, why is it that my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my best friend, my husband, my wife, my daughter, my son, why would this happen to them? First of all, God never initiates this kind of misery. You need to know that. But I'm also recognizing that we as a church, you have to be accurate. You have to be accountable to say this, God permits things to happen. But there is a line that he draws. And that line is this. That he will not go as far as something that will violate the nature of God. When it comes to death, when it comes to things, we all always try to escape in every way possible. And rightfully so. We're designed that way. Jesus never preached a funeral. Ever. First funeral I ever preached. I looked up. How did Jesus do it? He broke him up. He didn't like it. He viewed death as an enemy. And so help me, as long as I live, I will too. Because we fight for life. That's what we do. But God allows these things to happen. In the Gospels, there was a demon-possessed man who was crying out to Jesus, and he said this. He goes, permit us. Asking the authority from, from, from Christ. And so when you look at this and you think, man... What about Job? How much was that? The enemy was constantly moving in on him. But guess what? There were parameters. God, God said this, you can't do this. And you can't touch this. And you can't do this. There, there are parameters that God sets. And so I want to give you a little insight in how I pray. This may not be comforting to you, but here it is. I start to pray. And you know what I start doing? If you're going through something, I start to worry. But God, you know what to do. When I start looking around and thinking, oh God, I don't know what's going to happen with the direction of this or, the, or the, the health of this person. What are you going to do here? And my mind starts to journey into a foggy mess of worry. The best prayer can be, but God, you know what to do. I was at a hospital where... Um, Man had a heart attack at a softball game, and we all took off. And we got there, and um, I was a new minister, and I remember there was uh, somebody looked over at this at, at this other minister, and they said, "Would you pray?" And it was a prayer that I just wanted to interrupt. I wanted to stop it right then. And hear me before you make any judgment on it. I just want to be very sincere, but hear me all the way through. He opens it up with, Lord, if it's your will to heal, heal this man. I'm thinking, no. 
Steve, you go in the hospital and you're rushed out of here, and I'm not riding in my car following ambulance going, Steve, uh, God, if, if you just, uh, you know, if it's in your Lord's will to keep Steve, no, I am going to be begging for your life to be saved. I am going to wear myself out in exhaustion to the point God says, I heard you. And then in the midst of it, when you have doubt and there's disbelief and you wonder and you're worried, the greatest release you could ever have is this. But God, you know everything. You've done your duty. When God says, when Jesus says, I want you to be sensible about these things, God imagines us to be sensible about what we pray for. But what about that rock? Remember when he said it in verse 25, David went down, so he went down to this rock. That was his safe place. That was the safe, that was the place he went to 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 hunker down to say, this is where I'm going to be. In 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 several more chapters, you know what there's going to be uttered? David's going to say, God, there is no rock like you. There is none like you. No greater hiding place. Psalm 71 verse 3 reads, Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. The greatest prayer you could ever pray ends with not a caveat to say, well, God, you're sovereign, you know what's going to happen, but to say, but God, I trust. And I know that behind this rock of safety and security, I know, while I can't know what you're going to do, I know that you can do these things. How many of us have gone to false rocks? How many of us have depended on so many things that really, in reality, is not the best for us? We all have them. And folks, I'll be the first one to tell you, we as a church can be a false rock if we're not careful. We come here knowing this, that when you pass this world, I won't be there with you. I won't. Creekside won't. More than likely, your spouse will not. You'll be alone. I remember it was in Romania, and the minister was given an illustration of a train and being on a train and just pulling up and all in the midst of a train of everybody being everybody celebrating everybody being happy everybody being together the train in the middle of the night stops and in the midst of this big party on this train the conductor simply comes and grabs you by the hand and says come here and walks you off that train and stands you in the field all alone and the train pulls away and the Romanian minister is explaining this will be death And all of the rocks, all of the people that you've held on to that were your fortresses are no longer there. Don't let that be the first time you've encountered the rock of refuge. Don't let it be the first time that you've continued, that you've come up to a place that's a fortress that you'll want to run into it. You and I have that ability every waking day to find in Him. There is no other rock like him. Wow. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the fact that in the midst of everything, in the midst of looking back and seeing David surrounded by what he was surrounded by, but God, you had a plan. 
when it looks like he was going to be captured behind behind a rock, but God, you sent a messenger. When it looked like he was discouraged and had no one ever to turn to, but God, you sent Jonathan. And God, as we as a church, when we look at a direction, God, and it was, we look excitedly to how to grow together as a family. Um, and Lord, sometimes I get worried to think that we're going to fail in different ways of meeting people's needs and being there for them. But God, you send more people to help us. But God, you have a plan for each one of us. And for that, we're so grateful. And if there'd be anybody in this room who's never given you a shot, they would simply say, but God, why not? And Lord, if there would be anybody in that position who's never received you as their Lord and their Savior, that what it means to be forgiven of their sins, they would look at the best minister that they know, the person that brought them, the person that invited them, or simply come up to one of us and receive the greatest news of their life. And Father, for the believers in here, then there are many. God, would you give us comfort to know we weren't meant to be the Messiah on this earth. We're not meant to be the one who answers our prayers when we pray. We weren't meant to be a facade and look like a force of strength when we go to you. Lord, as much as we need you as the rock, you enjoy being the fortress. If we don't know what to do, what to pray, or what to say, but God, you do. For that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.